Corinthians chapter 10. And we're not going to be doing a Bible study tonight per se. I, I want to address some issues with you about music tonight. Some time ago, I was given a sheet of paper which were guidelines for selecting music for seeker-sensitive services. Now, let me read the verse of Scripture, and then I want to give you a little bit of the background, a little bit of the history of, of the contemporary Christian music. In verse 31 of chapter 10, we read there, Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Now there's the key phrase. Be not conformed to this world, but to the contrary, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, and the idea here is that you may prove experientially what is that good and per, acceptable and perfect or total will of God for your life. Be not conformed to this world. The word conform means to fashion or shape one thing so that it looks like or resembles another. And the Bible is very clear here. Now in Romans chapter 8, we're to be conformed positively to the image of his son. So there's both a negative and a positive, and, and tonight we're kind of emphasizing the negative. What we're, what we're not to be conformed to is the world. That doesn't mean because the world wears clothes, we shouldn't. But we should wear the right kind of clothes, not necessarily being taken in by the world's fashions and, and the immodesty and things like that. The attitudes, the actions, the attire, all those kinds of things of the world is what he's talking about. I mean, I, I love my violin, all right? By the way, the one I played tonight was my carbon fiber violin. I forgot to tell you about that. I only heard about it about two and a half years ago, and, and I thought, wow, that would be perfect for taking to the mission field because you don't have to worry about humidity or temperature. It's made out of the same stuff they make airplane wings out of, so maybe if I get enough going, I could fly with it, get a motor with it. Anyway, uh, be not conformed to this world. Don't allow yourself to be fashioned and shaped so that you look like and resemble and talk like and sing like and sound like and dress like and act like the world. Now folks, let me make a bold statement right here at the very beginning and then we're going to go through our study tonight. Contemporary Christian music is not only not good, it is sin. For a lot of reasons, which I'm not going to have time to get into tonight, but if for no other reason than because it violates the command of Romans 12, 2. Contemporary Christian music, frankly, is nothing more, frankly, than a conformity to the world musically. Now, let me give you a little bit of the history of where it all came from, and it has changed names a few times over the years. Back in 1969, Hollywood produced a film called The Graduate. I've not seen the film, and I hear it's not a nice film. Uh, and in that film, there is a song and it's called Mrs. Robinson. And the words, part of the words go something like this. Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It was not a religious song. It was a song that was making fun of Jesus. Making fun of religion. But you know, folks, there's always been a segment of society. Well, let's talk about 
Christian society that is willing to be as much like the world as they can and still be called Christian. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I think, in 2 Samuel chapter, no, 1 Samuel chapter 8, or chapter 6, I forget which chapter it is now, Israel came to Samuel and said, listen, you're getting up in years and your sons are not like you. And by the way, that's a tragedy in itself because Samuel was the one who had to tell Eli about the wickedness of his sons and the fact that he was a bad parent, did not restrain them. And now he himself follows in those same footsteps. Great preacher, great prophet, but a miserable parent. And they said, we want you to make us a king. Here's the reason, so we can be like all the nations. We're tired of being a theocracy. We want to be like everybody else. And what they didn't realize, and later they came to realize it was sin for them to ask for a king. And, and, and Samuel pleads with them, please don't do this. And they said, nay, but we will have a king. The willfulness of man, folks, is something to at times be dreaded <laughs> and to be contended with. We will have a king. And uh, what they didn't realize was that the kings were not going to help them, they were going to destroy them. Folks, the judges, if you read the book of Judges, they were used to bring the people back to God when they strayed into idolatry. When they were compromising and being like the world, if you please, and God judged them, and then they, he raised up a judge who delivered them, and as long as the judge was living, there was peace, and, and they were walking with the Lord. As soon as the judge died, was off the scene, they were right back to going after false gods and spiritual harlotry and idolatry and all kinds of wickedness. And now they want a king, and what they didn't realize, the kings were not going to lead them closer to God, they were going to lead them away from God. And uh, King Saul was not a good king. He was good looking. That was the only problem he had. He knew it. But he was a, lot, he was a, he was a typical politician. He was not a patriot. He was not a conservative. Uh, we'll leave it go with that, all right? Uh, he was not a Trump fan. Anyway, um, he, and then, of course, King David. And, of course, David was a basically pretty good king. And then Solomon. And Solomon had his problems morally at the end of his life. And because of his womanizing, God, uh, God took the kingdom away from him upon his death. And then we have the divided kingdom. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, there was not one good king. Everyone was a lowdown good-for-nothing, uh, uh, religious apostate. On the south, you had some good kings like Hezekiah and Asa and Joash and, and uh, some of those guys, and then you had some kind of intermediates, and then you had some really bad ones like Manasseh and, and his son. And uh, what happens is the people were led astray by the kings to the point where God delivered the northern kingdom into the Assyrian captivity, and the southern kingdom of Judah into a 70-year Babylonian captivity. Now, folks, that, that wanting to be like the world is where a lot of Christians are today. They want to be as much like the world. And when that song came out, there was that segment of, of Christians who were already compromising by going to the theater. And, uh, and here's this, wow, it was the first time in history that the name of Jesus was mentioned in a Hollywood film, other than as a swear word. And now you've got this, this part of Christianity, if they're Christians at all, we'll call them that anyway, we'll give them the benefit of that, who jump on that, wow, we can have Jesus, and we can have our rock music. Now, by 1969, rock music was well embedded as a musical style in America. When I was a kid, it was, there was no rock music. It was, it was the rhythm and blues and the, and the jazz and, the, and the, the big band sound, 
It wasn't until the early to mid-1950s that rock and roll was born. 1952 actually was the world's first rock and roll concert in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was a moral musical disaster. Well, as music developed then, uh, I have, in fact, in the book I have, I have a chart there that shows you music in 19, um, 1969 versus 1979, uh, or 1964 versus 1979. What's now known as praise and worship music. See, it started out just being called Jesus music in the 1960s. Larry Norman was kind of considered the father of the Jesus movement musically. It was called Jesus music, and later it became known as Christian rock, and then, then it became known as contemporary Christian music, and now they try to soften the term a little bit to make it a little more acceptable. Now it's praise and worship music. But folks, I want to tell you, you cannot worship God with unholy music. Now, in, in the, as the musical stuff developed, the, this, they, they came out, churches were against it. Evangelical churches were preaching against it. So what happened is the, the uh, contemporary Christian music scene had to come up with some way of defending their position. And they came up with three primary arguments. Number one, and this is the most important one, they said music is amoral. That means that music has no moral influence at all. And folks, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that that's a lie. That is not true. Did you ever see a little kid, maybe a toddler, who's uh, in, in the living room and, and some TV commercial come on, comes on with all the rock music and they unconsciously start to wiggle their bodies, trying their best to dance, though they don't know how to dance. But why? Their bodies are responding to the rhythm. Melody affects man's spirit, Harmony affects man's soul, and rhythm affects man's body. That's a whole other different study. And so they say music is amoral. No, it has no effect on you whatsoever. Number two, they said, but a Christian rock is an alternative to secular rock. Is it? Do you ever listen to any of it and compare it to a secular station? Without the words, if you can even get the words, there's no difference musically. It's the same thing. And then they say, but we're winning souls with it. Well, that's not the purpose of Christian music. Christian music, you read Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, and Colossians 3, 16. The purpose of Christian music is to edify believers and teach believers and to worship God together. And so now they've come out with these ideas and these guidelines for how do you develop music for a seeker-sensitive service? Well, can I, can I say this? My Bible says that there's none that seeketh after God. A seeker-friendly church, folks, has no biblical foundation to even exist. So well, why are these churches growing? They're not growing because they have a hunger for the Word of God, which is what the church is all about, that and fellowship. The churches that are contemporary are growing because people are going for the entertainment. Years ago, it used to be that the church marquees would have Sunday sermon title on it and the hours of the services. Now it's which service is contemporary and which one's traditional. And who goes to which? The old fogies go to the traditional service. That's people like you and me. Did you know you're an old fogey? And then the young people go to the, the uh, contemporary service. It's the, it's the music of the youth. No, it's the music of the world. 
And churches that say, well, we have to use this kind of music to keep our young people have already lost their young people. So let me go over this, uh, this, this list of suggestions, all right? And, and this little booklet, we've, uh, we've, we've put this in print, so you can actually get a copy and take this along with you if you want further reference. Music for secret sensitive service, and I'm quoting from them now. And then I will comment. I'm going to read every one of these, and I'm going to comment on each one as we go through. They say, don't underestimate the power of music. When I read that, I thought, what in the world are you talking about? That's a deliberate, absolute lie. Historically, contemporary Christian musicians, in order to try to salve the fundamentalists in the church, has said music is amoral. That means it has no power. But may I say, that is an absolutely true statement. There is a power in music. And they say, don't know, they're under which they're, they're committing academic and musical suicide by saying that because, again, they've always said it's, uh, it's, uh, music is amoral. They say it, meaning music, can soften people's heart. True. I totally agree with that. They say, quote, it can change people's moods. Sure can. They say, and I quote, it can help people focus and avoid distractions. And again, that's absolutely true. So far, everything they're saying is absolutely true. And I, as a conservative musician, would have totally agree with it. Now, this is a real, this, this next one is a real, is the height of hypocrisy. They say it, meaning music, can present a message all by itself. Then how can you say it's all moral? The problem with, with some of this stuff is that the, they, they, they take words that are supposedly Christian, and some are and some aren't. You know, some of the doctrinally, most contemporary Christian music is very doctrinally weak. Uh, and, and, they, and so you take a, a holy theme and you marry it to an unholy medium, the music, and God condemns that kind of an unequal yoke. God never condones it. It's always condemned. But so far, I agree with everything they've said. It can present a message all by itself. That's why the music and the message need to, need to be uh, uh, in agreement. Now, the contemporary musician often condemns, in the first song, the most often condemned song is Holy, Holy, Holy. Not the new Holy, Holy. There's the new Holy, Holy version. But I'm talking, Holy, Holy, Holy. You know what I'm talking about? They say, it doesn't move me. It's not supposed to move you. Folks, that is, a, that is a great marriage, frankly, of melody and message. It is a song. It is a song written about the, the holiness of God. And, and there needs to be a sense of reverence. And the musical theme of that it has a sense of reverence as it moves along, folks. It's a wonderful marriage of lyric and, and message, or rather, and music. And it's not supposed to move us where we want to tap our feet. And uh, so uh, I... I struggle sometimes with the logic of, of these folks. Now, again, quoting, they say, why must we select music carefully? Carefully? I'm still quoting, they say, most Christian songs, get this, are written by Christians for Christians and were never meant for unbelievers. Is that true or false? True or false? Most Christian songs were written by Christians for Christians 
and were never meant for unbelievers. That's absolutely true. Fanny Crosby and these other great hymn writers, they didn't write for the unconverted. Those songs were written to glorify God and to edify believers. They were, they were never meant for unbelievers. They say most Christian songs use, get this one, they use Christian language profusely. Duh! You suppose that might be why it's called Christian music? What kind of language would you want to use in writing Christian music? Here's another one. Most Christian songs, they say, tend to use metaphors, biblical symbols, and concepts that are not understood by outsiders and not even by many Christians. Again, that is an absolutely true statement. There are a lot of Christians who are, who are weak Christians or, or new Christians, uh, those that haven't grown up yet, and not, they're not very doctrinally grounded, who don't understand some of these concepts. But biblical symbols, why would we not use those in writing of Christian songs and hymns? Here's another one. Most Christian songs, and I'm emphasizing the word Christian here, address spiritual concerns and issues far more than everyday life issues. Again, my response is, duh. Folks, you read Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. You read Ephesians chapter 5, and that's exactly what this statement is addressing. They address spiritual concerns and issues far more than every day. They want, they, in other words, they want to have songs about sadness, about, about discouragement, and, and all those kinds of things. And we want to talk about emotions. Listen, folks, you want to have, if you're having an emotional problems, the best thing to do is get in the good Christian hymn sing. And that will lift you right out of the, the, the depths of despair. I was with a pastor one time. We were visiting a lady, inviting her to the service. She said, oh, I can't come. I'm depressed. I said, well, then come to church and be depressed. It's okay to be depressed in church. Oh, I can't come. I'm depressed. And we talked. I said, man, being in church with the Lord's people and the song service and the music and the preaching, I said, that'll take care of you. I can't come to church. I'm depressed. You know, I said, ma'am, you're depressed because you want to be depressed. You don't want anything any better. Don't, don't try to tell us, well, you have a spirit. Yeah, you have a spiritual problem, but you're not willing to deal with it from, from a spiritual perspective. Yes, most Christian songs do address spiritual concerns. Most Christian songs, here's another one, address the perceived needs of, under, of unbelievers rather than their felt needs. The perceived needs would deal, for example, with their need of salvation. Um, and, and, uh, and, and not dealing with their felt needs. Here's another one. Most Christian songs are easy to sing by Christians who are accustomed to that style of music. Most hymns were written to be sung in SATB harmony. That's soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. That's the, that's the setup that you have in your hymn book. All right? You have the treble clef with the alto and the soprano. You have the bass clef with the tenor and the bass. And so most hymns were written to be sung in SATB four-part harmony, Virtually non-existent in the secular music world today. That is true. Unchurched people are not likely to identify with or appreciate most of this type of music. Again, church music was not intended for the seeker or the unchurched or the unbeliever. So they've got, they've got everything backwards. They're making true statements, but they've got it all backwards. Now, uh, just because the world doesn't understand four-part harmony doesn't mean we should not use it. Folks, can I say this? The church, or rather the world, <clears throat> has nothing the church needs. 
It is the church that has what the world needs, including the proper singing of hymns and gospel songs. Now we move on to their next section, which they've entitled Guidelines for Selecting Music for Seeker-Friendly Churches. Now up to this point, I have to say I'm in 100% agreement with every statement I've read on this paper. But now we're at a crossroads and we begin to part company. Here's their suggestions. Number one, avoid songs that use King James language. Do you not find it interesting? Everybody wants to retranslate the Bible and come up with all these different translations. And the one popular one now is the ESV. And the ESV, if you read the inside cover, it is, a, it is a, an update of the Revised Standard Version put out by the National Council of Churches in the 1940s. Why would any fundamentalist want to use that translation is beyond me. But it's becoming very popular. Uh, do you not find it interesting? People are not trying to upgrade and, and, and retranslate Shakespeare. You know the Shakespeare play, it's still the these and the vows. Folks, listen, there's a power in Elizabethan English that is not in colloquial English. For example, when Nathan the prophet goes to David, one of the translations says, you're the one. Whoopie-doo. The King James says, and you could almost visualize an evangelist pointing his index finger and saying, thou art the man. Folks, there's a bite in that. That does not end, thou art, you're the one. Their rationale is unchurched people do not identify with middle Elizabethan English. It sounds both foreign and outdated to most secular people. So what? That doesn't mean we don't use it. Again, again, referring back to Shakespeare. No one's come out with a new version of Shakespeare in modern, in modern English. It wouldn't, be worth, it wouldn't be worth performing. Here's another guideline. Avoid songs that use biblical terminology, metaphors, or concepts. Then how do you call it Christian music? The rationale is anyone, including a believer, who does not understand what certain words mean may miss the point of the song. Difficult concepts are not likely to be understood, nor will they be relevant to the unbeliever's place in life. That is not surprising because they're not saved. They don't have a relationship with God. Therefore, everything that's related to the Bible and Christianity is foolishness unto them because they're spiritually discerned and they don't have that discernment. And if you come to a spot where the song has a, has a word in it that, you, that kind of, it's kind of lost its usage and, and we don't understand, like uh, Mount Pisgah's Mount, you know, well, that's, that's a reference to a mountain in, in Israel. Well, that's when the song leader, if he knows what he's doing, he just stops and explains what, he's, what, the, what the song is talking about. I mean, you read the Bible, there are times you come to a passage you don't understand. I have that. that happens to me. I know it doesn't happen to you. He's one of those scholarly types. I'm just John Average dummy. Uh, have this passage, you don't understand. You know what I, I go to the commentaries, guess what? I find they had the same problem. They didn't understand that either because they jump over that passage and go on to the next verses. Uh, Christian music is not, is, is not designed to be relevant to the unbeliever's place in life. Here's another one. Avoid songs with deep or obscure spiritual references such as spiritual powers, mystical experiences, or evil forces. The rationale is seekers are not likely to understand these things as believers do and may conclude that Christianity is too hard to understand and too mystical for them. 
I'm still quoting, in addition, most of these concepts are not central to the Christian faith, and they could, in fact, become a distraction to the message we are trying to communicate to seekers. Folks, that's where the pastoral teaching comes in, explaining some of the deeper things. And, and again, this whole concept here is trying to gear a church music program to people who are not saved and have no concept and no understanding of the Christian faith at all. The Christian faith is difficult to understand for an unsaved person because he's tried to do it himself. And he has to come to a place where he understands he's a sinner separated from God, and the only thing that he can do is to turn to Jesus Christ and trust him as his personal Savior. Here's another suggestion. Select songs that address people's felt needs. And throughout this, there's a great emphasis placed upon feeling. Rationale. Songs that address loneliness, relationship problems, pain, uncertainty, and everyday struggles of life can set the mood for a message dealing with topics such as these. Hey, the great hymns of the faith will do the same thing. There's a lot of them that can deal with those things. Uh, uh, Jesus is with me wherever I go. That'll deal with loneliness, won't it? And uh, other things. So number here's another one. Select songs that express hope. Well, I don't, I don't have a problem with this necessarily. I mean, we want to have songs that express hope, yeah, but there are also songs that are teaching and, and warning. You can never have peace and, and, and sweet rest until all on the altar is laid. There's a warning that goes with that song. It's not just about hope. Seekers are usually looking for positive changes in their lives. Share songs that show how happiness, stability, security that can be found in knowing Christ or that, or that demonstrate how God can make a positive difference in their lives today. They want positive change. You know, they want, what they do is they want the effects of Christianity without becoming Christian. A lot of people want the effects of Christianity in America, but they don't want America to be Christian. You can't have it both ways. Select music that is celebrative, cheerful, and positive. Rationale, a seeker-sensitive program provides the unbeliever with a window through which he can observe how believers worship. If a song is slow in a minor key or seems to go on endlessly, hey, let me pause there. Did you ever listen to these 7-Eleven contemporary Christian worship songs? They go on and on and on and on. The same basic melody, the same, the same format, the same words again and again. Talk about boring. The seeker may have the impression that church is boring. Think about how the music will make unbelievers feel. No, think about how the music will affect God's people for whom it was intended. Just because a song is slow doesn't make it boring. What makes church music boring is a boring way of singing. I mean, um, for example, I was doing song leading for service in a church of about 700 people one time. And uh, I began with, I, I think we began with Wonderful Grace of Jesus. And boy, that's a whoop or do. And then we went to Nearer, Still Nearer. Do you know the hymns Nearer, Still Nearer? The piano player was playing it like Camp Town Races. I said, I I whoa, 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 stop, folks. I said, this is a prayer. We're not singing this like wonderful grace of Jesus. And, and you can get them to sing and, they, and say, hit the high notes and really sing out volume-wise. I said, we're not doing that with this song. I said, no, you want to sing out. You want to sing intensely. But this is a prayer. And the tempo is going to be noticeably slower. You'll see, nearer, still nearer, da 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 da. It's nearer, still nearer, close to thy heart. And boy, and, the, and they did. It was wonderful. 
sent chills down my, si- down my spine to hear those people say. And after the service was over, the pianist came up to me because, see, they had a guy who didn't really know music. He just he was a dentist. He just led music like this, you know. That's about as big as his motion was. And so she kind of led the service. He just kind of followed the piano player. And she came up to me. She said, you know, this isn't a choir. I said, yeah, it is. It's a 700-voice choir. And you saw how well they sang tonight. And she said, well, I hope you're not going to do this very often. I said, every chance I get. (laughs) Um, We want to have music that is cheerful, celebrative, and positive. But just because it's slow doesn't mean it's boring. A song in a minor key doesn't have to be boring. Uh, Once to every man and nation, the same tune for another words. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Oh, my goodness. That's a beautiful song. And when you sing it from the heart, the problem is a lot of Christians just kind of sing ho-hum. Now, you, you've sung pretty well, but you've you got, you got a guy here and two guys here that are kind of a little, little extrovertish, all right? They're not too shy or bashful. And the purpose of a song leader, by the way, are you listening, brother? <laughs> the purpose of a song leader is not to sing a solo. It's to draw the music out of the congregation. It's to get you to sing better, all right? And I hope you respond to that well. So I'm not, I'm not concerned how unbelievers, I'll tell you what, folks, if you do Christian music in the hymn book the way it should be done with the spirit and the heart of singing to the Lord, it'll have a tremendous impact on the unsaved person. Amen. I was directing music at a conference in a, in a hotel uh, setting uh, in, in uh, Pennsylvania, I forget where it was now, near Gettysburg, and there were several hundred people there at the conference, and boy, they were singing their hearts out. Now, the room did have good acoustics, that helps. You have good acoustics here with this type of a ceiling. Churches have a flat thing with, with acoustical tiling and, and padded pews. It's like singing in a funeral parlor. But you've got good acoustics here, so you have no excuse, all these hard surfaces, to not sing out and sing well. And uh, there was a couple guys who were painting in the hallway. They were unsaved guys. And they actually stopped their work and came down and stood in the, in the doorway. And there was a person there greeting them and said, man, man. I've never heard such singing. Hey, it had an impact upon that unsaved painter. Here's another one. Select music with a contemporary soft rock beat. Did you ever get hit in the face with a soft rock? (laughs) Folks, all soft rock is is rock and roll music. That, that where you, the beat is still there, but you can still hear the melody. The heavy rock stuff, the melody is lost with all the drums and, and all the other nonsense that goes on. So here's, here's their rationale. Rock is the most listened to and most widely accepted music in the world. My, my answer is, so what? That doesn't make it right. People who have been burned by church will check out immediately to see if the music sounds churchy and formal. I laugh at this. What do you expect church music to sound like but churchy? Amen. What else would you want it to sound like? We want, we want patriotic music to sound patriotic, don't we? We want funeral music to sound sad and, and slow and all that. Folks, church music ought to sound churchy. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
They say all other, uh, at the other extreme, hard rock beat may be overbearing and offensive. Soft rock is widely accepted by both boomers and busters. It does not appeal to everyone, but no music does. Soft rock has the widest appeal. This is, this is total pragmatism. Do whatever works to get a crowd. If I have to compromise to get a crowd, folks, I don't want a crowd. And I hope this church will never compromise for the sake of gaining people. Uh, maintain your standards musically and doctrinally and separation issues. And let God grow the church Amen. in his way. Uh, let me, I only have a few more here. Consider using songs that are already familiar to seekers. Get this. Secular songs from contemporary albums, recent radio hits, or very familiar hymns that they may have heard before, like Amazing Grace. Using secular stuff, rock music off out of the world in church? The rationale is this. Using familiar contemporary music will communicate to seekers that our church is not buried in the past, nor is it against the kind of music they like. We are against the kind of music they like. And we're not buried in the past. There's a lot of nice music being written today. We just sang a song from, from Psalm 91. Using a very popular, such as Amazing Grace, a song will very likely be acceptable for nostalgic reasons. Amazing Grace is probably the best-known song in the world. How many times do you hear the bagpipes playing at a funeral and folks, people sing it and have no idea what Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. There's nothing nostalgic about that. It's a testimony of John Newton and the wonderful saving grace of God. Folks, we don't need to do music because it makes people feel nostalgic. Because, oh, Grandma used to sing that. Perform music with joyfulness and genuine enthusiasm. With this, I agree. Their rationale, however, is worship can be a powerful witness to the unbeliever if God's presence is felt. We need to evaluate our motive behind presenting music. Are we praising God we love or simply filling time gaps in the Sunday morning? Yes, we need to do music joyfully and with enthusiasm, but not with the idea of impressing an unsaved person. Leave that to God. Music should be engaging. People should feel it and move along with it. Again, emphasis on feeling. The rationale is the more people are a part of it, the more they will be interested. Using a band or at least instrumental backing tracks, soundtracks, when possible. The PA system should provide full, full balanced sound that can be heard throughout the hall. Most PA systems in contemporary churches, folks, is overbearing, it's overloud, and it's causing physical harm to the listeners in, 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 in presenting them hearing loss. People should not be made to feel like they have to sing along. Rational, most unchurched people are not accustomed to singing aloud, and, but are open to it. Giving them the option will put them at ease. We don't ask unsaved people if they're visiting. To, to, we ask the congregation to sing. If they don't want to sing, that's up to them. That's between them and God. But folks, we would encourage you all, the rest of you, to sing out from the heart. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then don't encourage them to clap or wave their hands. Well, we certainly don't do that. They say many believers feel uncomfortable in a service where this takes place. It will almost make the outsider feel awkward and confused. And with that, I, I, I would, again, I would, I would have to agree with that. 
And finally, lose, use live music whenever possible, but don't be afraid of canned music. Um, the rationale, it is much better to present excellent pre-recorded music than poor live music. Also, everyone who listens to music spends far more time listening to pre-recorded music than they do live music, radio, albums at home, music videos, TV commercials, etc. A well-done live performance gives it that extra touch but must be done well to be effective. Now, I, I use pre-recorded music. Glenn Christensen accompanied me today on, those, on these backgrounds. Uh, I'm, I'm basically in small church ministry. I don't have a pianist to travel with me. When Barb was alive, she was not a piano player. So I got good pianists who loved the Lord, and they recorded stuff for me. And there was nothing offensive about what you heard today, was there? I don't think so. Um, so here we have this music for seeker-sensitive service, and it's a lot of, a lot of double talk, a lot of hypocrisy. Uh, let's conclude by turning to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Ephesians 5, and beginning at verse... 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Let me make a comment here. He's not, he's not saying drinking in moderation is okay. What he's saying here is that he's making a comparison here. When you're drunk with wine wherein is excess, you are controlled by that alcohol. So don't be controlled with things like alcohol wherein is excess, but to the contrary, be filled with, controlled by the Spirit. Result of that is speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There, by the way, is an emphasis on melody. There's no emphasis on rhythm, basically, in the Bible. And then Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, and with this I'm going to close and turn it back to Pastor. Um, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now here are the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The psalms is a book of psalms set to music. The hymn, the Hebrew, the Greek word hymneo, is a doctrinal ode. Basically what it is, a, a, a hymn is a doctrinal statement uh, about God that is set to music about God and directed to God, usually dealing with some of the characteristics of his, of his attributes. And then the spiritual song is a reference to what we today would call a gospel song. I've referred to it as a testimony set to music. Uh, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Oh, how I love Jesus, and etc. So we have that part of this verse. And then notice speaking, teaching, and admonishing one another. Here's the emphasis of church music, folks, for believers, not unbelievers, not, quote, seekers. And then singing and, uh, with grace in your hearts, singing from the heart. You say, well, I can't sing very well. Well, that's okay. If you make a joyful noise, just don't do it in the choir. Make a joyful noise in your seat, and everybody else will be encouraged to sing louder than you to drown you out. All right? Listen, uh, make a joyful noise unto the Lord if that's all you can do. Uh, but singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's what it's all about. In our song service, we are, we are actively worshiping God. We're through music and the lyrical content. We're telling God what we think of him. And that's worship. So we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I hope it's been helpful to you. I hope I haven't lost you, and I hope you'll enjoy singing Psalm 91. If you remind me, Pastor, I have, I have a sheet that you can copy, and it has Psalm 95 and Psalm 
another psalm as well. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our time together tonight. Pray you bless it to our hearts, and may we respond as you would have us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I apologize about the glasses. Okay, we'll hold it to you for next time. <laughs>